Well, these are the last hours of Jesus' life prior to his crucifixion. And they are hours of rejection and intense suffering. Our text today is Matthew 27, verses 1 through 10. And honestly, as you turn there, it is a difficult text in more ways than one. I'm praying that as we go through it, our hope is secured and even increased in the Lord. And so let's get to the text and begin to work through it. If you're able, go ahead and stand and follow along, beginning with verse 1 of Matthew 27, reading through verse 10. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself. But the chief priests taking the pieces of silver said, it is not lawful to put them into the treasury since it is blood money. So they took counsel and brought with them the potter's, and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, and they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed. Father, we praise you for your word. Your word is good. It is trustworthy. We praise you for it. We do ask you for your help as we look at the word today. Help us to love you. Help us to trust you. Help us to believe in you. Help us to embrace you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. We see in verse 1 the trial with the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin has concluded. They've judged Jesus as guilty. And in the morning, as this trial took place at night, the chief priests and the elders formally take counsel and resolve to put Jesus to death. He is innocent of any and all crimes, and yet he is charged as guilty by these religious leaders. Verses 1 and 2, when morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death, and they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. Since Jesus is is now condemned prisoner who they want to execute, he is bound and then taken to Pilate. And remember, the Jewish authorities, these religious leaders, don't have the right to execute someone unless that person or people have desecrated the temple. And so the entire purpose of the interrogation was to find out something as hard evidence 
to take Jesus then to Pilate and convince Pilate to have him put to death. Pilate was the governor of Judea and the Roman prefect under the emperor. So Jesus is taken to Pilate to be tried, and we'll pick that up more next week. But the story is then interrupted. Verse 3, Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. Now, this is difficult, okay? Our text today is difficult. There's some difficult things here, and we're going to talk about them. Judas, the one who had betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, apparently sees the results of the trial, whether he snuck in and was watching from some place like Peter was attempting to do. Maybe sees the mocking, the spitting on Jesus, the fact that Jesus was blindfolded and beaten, and it says that Judas changed his mind. Judas was filled with remorse. Judas regretted his betrayal of Jesus. And so what does he do? What can he do? He's Judas. Well, first he brought the money, the 30 pieces of silver, back to the chief priests and elders. He wants to give it back. It was blood money. So it says, saying, he goes, takes the money back, saying, I have, this is verse 4, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said... What is that to us? See to it yourself. So this next thing he does is he admits his wrong. I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. He acknowledges his sin. And he acknowledges that Jesus was innocent. The religious leaders respond, what is that to us? See to it yourself. Deal with it yourself. These priests care nothing about Judas, care nothing about his conscience. They don't care whether Jesus is innocent or not. They just want to get rid of this troublemaker, Jesus. And their indifference to Judas' remorse is exactly how they tried Jesus. They don't care about truth. Even as they seem or act as if they are fighting for truth, they don't care about truth. Just because religious leaders say things that sound like they're fighting for truth, and we see that in the remainder of this text, it doesn't mean they love truth. Verse 5 continues, And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself. Judas, whether it's in frustration or despair or both, throws the silver coins and leaves. And then he goes and hangs himself. There's some things we need to talk about here. We need to be honest with the text, okay? Because there is a desire to say, well, Judas was sad. 
but he didn't repent. And honestly, my, my first instinct to read this text, my first instinct is to run to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 8 through 10, where Paul differentiates between worldly guilt and godly guilt. In that text, he, he writes, For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while, as it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Now, that's absolutely true. We've, we've probably all experienced this ourselves whether it's in us or whether it's in, in those around us where we've seen these two examples take place, worldly grief is when you get caught. You're doing something, whether you know you're wrong from the beginning or not, and you get caught, and you experience real sorrow, real sadness, not because of what you have done necessarily, but because you're caught now. That's what Paul's saying in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. You're caught, it's been found out, and you don't like the consequences of that, right? You don't like what happens because you got caught. That is worldly grief, and it leads to death because you're not truly sorrowful for what you have done. Godly grief, Paul is saying, is way, way, way deeper and far more important than that. Godly grief is a realization that I've done something that is sinful and wrong, and someone or especially God has been affected by what I've done. Godly grief leads to repentance. It's different. It's grief for what you have actually done, not because you got caught, because of what it caused or just the fact that it was wrong. Now, we have to be honest here. Building a bridge from Matthew 27, Judas's remorse, to 2 Corinthians 7, saying this is somehow worldly grief, is a very rickety bridge at best, because what is explained in Matthew 27 is not worldly grief. Okay, we can be honest with that. It's not worldly grief. It's, it's true remorse. It's true sorrow over what he has done. Everything we see here is remorse because he knows he sinned. And because what he did was wrong. He betrayed an innocent man. And even more, he broke God's law, which says in Deuteronomy that a person who takes a bribe to shed an innocent person's blood will be condemned. So this looks way more like godly guilt than it looks like worldly guilt. And Judas even seems to try to do what? He, he seems to try to repent. Now, what is repentance? It's not just confessing, right? But changing your mind and turning the other way. It's, it's, it's how I was always taught it. It's 
Repentance is a change of mind and a change of action. Judas takes the money back just like Zacchaeus did. So we need to wrestle with this. We ought to wrestle with these things. It's good to wrestle. Now, it is true that the more common Greek word for repent that's translated repent is not the word that's used in the verse here about Judas. But that doesn't mean the word here isn't used to mean true repentance in other places. In fact, in Matthew, we have it as an example. Matthew chapter 21 that we just covered weeks ago, beginning with verse 28. What do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. The, the word there is the same that we see in Matthew 27. The parable of the two sons, the one is commended for repenting. He changed his mind. The same word that's used here for Judas. But here in Matthew 27, sadly, there is no commendation. And it says Judas then goes and hangs himself. He's so grieved and so hopeless, he kills himself. And let's make something clear here. Judas was not outside of the grace of God because he killed himself. He's not outside of the grace of God because he took his own life. Suicide is not the unpardonable sin. This is such a sad and difficult picture. Judas killed himself. We can tend to be robotic about so many things in the scriptures. Well, we know Judas is Judas. He killed himself. Let me say here, there's some discrepancy between Matthew's account of this and Luke's account of this in Acts 1. Matthew says Judas hanged himself, Acts 1, verses 18 and 19 Say, now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out and it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Now Luke's account doesn't sound like hanging. Some have said that maybe Judas hung himself and hung there and then the rope snapped and he fell headlong to the ground. That's possible for sure. I don't know how that played out, but he died, and Matthew says he hung himself. It's a terrible thing. And what do we do with it? What do we do with Judas hanging himself, especially the fact that it, it, 
it sure looks like Judas was going through the efforts of repenting. Let me begin here. Judas went to the wrong place. The wrong people. Now, let's, let's not just say that and think that that's just something easy that he should have known. It wasn't easy at all. These religious leaders should have responded differently. They were set on an agenda, and that agenda made them merciless. They're not merciful because they were fixated on an agenda. The religious leaders didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah, but they knew. They knew that God was merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. The one who rescued them from slavery in Egypt brought their people to a promised land. They knew God. But they withheld mercy. They withheld Him. They withheld Yahweh. So put yourself in Judas's shoes for a minute. How does he make right with Jesus? They bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. It's a public display. When Judas saw that Jesus was condemned, he doesn't think he has a way to make it right with his friend, and so he goes to his religious leaders who should have said, the Lord abounding in mercy. But they don't, and he despairs. Jesus, Judas needed to go to the Lord. Instead, he takes his own life. And so you think, on the very day that Jesus will die the very day that Jesus dies. Jesus, the one who has taught Judas and walked with Judas and shown Judas that he is the way and the truth and the life. On the same day that Jesus dies, Judas dies apart from Jesus. And I want to speak to this sincerely and seriously. I've, I've never in my life experienced Suicide. I've not been up close to it. But I know that some of you have, and I know that from what I understand, there is a mixture of a feeling anger as well as despair when you experience that. And I want to say to those of you who have been close to it, I'm sorry. Some of you may see this text or hear this and it brings fear and anger and despair as you remember. And if we're honest, there are maybe some who read this text or hear this and maybe understand more about Judas than others do. Judas is a unique figure through whom the worst act in history occurred, through whom prophecy is fulfilled. 
And I don't want to downplay that as we explore what must have been going through his heart and his mind, but he's also a real thinking and feeling human being in an unbearable situation. And there are people, maybe some here, who despair at far lesser things. That experience is real. If you are experiencing that now or have experienced that, it's real. Feelings of despair can lead to irrevocable choices. Grief, remorse, despair are real things, whether you've experienced them or understand them or not. And we, we ought to be people who fit those things into our theology. It's why we read Psalm 42 earlier, because there are some who despair. Even in the scriptures, there are those who despair. What should Judas have done? He should have gone to Jesus. You know, Hebrews 11 verse 1 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. That's what faith is. Judas didn't have grace because he didn't have this hope in Jesus. He knew facts about Jesus. He knew Jesus was innocent. He, he somewhat repents because he knows that Jesus is innocent. He knows that about Jesus. He knows that Jesus can do undeniably unbelievable perfect miracles. He knows Jesus can speak to waves, calm storms. He's seen Jesus forgive sins. Judas didn't have grace because he didn't have this hope in Jesus. Now think about this. There are upwards of a million people in Jerusalem for Passover when this is taking place. We can't even imagine how many people are packed into Jerusalem. And Judas has never been more alone than he is right now. So I want to say, if you are here or you're listening, please, if you despair, please find help and seek hope. The truth is there are some today who respond to those in despair exactly like these religious leaders did. What is that to us? It may not be the same words. It may be words of like, well, just trust in Jesus. Just look to Jesus. And that's true, but it's not always helpful. It's not always good. Because some people just don't know how to do that. If you're here and you despair, seek hope. There are some who are more fixated on, a, on an agenda than they are on mercy. But let me say to you, God is merciful. God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And so please don't feel like all people will treat you like these religious leaders treated Judas. 
And don't think that Jesus isn't reachable or doesn't want you just the way that you are. He is and he does. If you need counseling to help you weed through the darkness, then do that. But please know that you are absolutely loved. I'm going to move on in the text for a bit. He came up because I said he's loved. <laughs> Starting with verse 6. But the chief priest, taking the pieces of silver, said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury, since it is blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, and they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed. The religious leaders who just tried and convicted an innocent man want to stick to details of the law now. Now, they just said to Judas, what is that to us? And yet now they want to be sticklers with the law. They can't keep the blood money, their blood money. And so they buy a field. Now, I want to talk about verse 9 for a minute because it's difficult. It says that this fulfilled what the prophet Jeremiah said. Now, I want to read to you another verse, okay? Verse 9 says... Um, They took the 30 pieces of silver. This is, the, this is what Prophet Jeremiah is saying. They took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel. So let me read to you first Zechariah eleven thirteen. Then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, the lordly price at which I was priced by them. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. Now, most commentaries say that a portion of the prophecy comes from Jeremiah 19, like Matthew refers here, so that's why Matthew uses Jeremiah's and not, the prop, uh, not both prophets' names, since Jeremiah is the more significant one. But man, I'm not going to go and read all of Jeremiah, Jeremiah 19. It is a stretch. I'm just going to be honest with you. It is a stretch to say that this is a quote from Jeremiah, or this is a fulfillment of Jeremiah. And if I'm just totally honest with you, I read several commentaries that didn't give satisfactory explanations of what is happening here with Matthew saying this. I did read this, though, that I want to read to you, and it resonated with me, and honestly, honestly with the text. So let me read this commentator uh, and, and, their, and what they're saying. How the name of Jeremiah crept in, I confess that I do not know. Nor do I give myself much trouble to inquire. The passage itself plainly shows that the name of Jeremiah has been put down by mistake instead of Zechariah. For in Jeremiah we find nothing of the sort, nor anything that even approaches to it. Now that other passage, if some degree of skill be not used in applying it, might seem to have been improperly distorted to a wrong meaning. But if we attend to the rule which the apostles followed in quoting Scripture, we shall easily perceive that what we find there is highly applicable to Christ. Now, I know 
that there are a couple of things that I just read in that quote that made some of your theological radars go off and alarms are sounding. And that's why I didn't tell you who wrote that. John Calvin wrote that, okay? Thank you for sighing. John Calvin wrote that. This is tough. It's hard. And we may get uncomfortable when anyone says, well, this might be the wrong name here. But it's okay for us to talk about it. What resonated with me with with Calvin's quote most is that I'm, I'm not sure we have to pour all or much of our time into who it was because it is an accurate fulfillment of the Lord's intentions for his Messiah spoken by one of his prophets and consistent with the overall message of the prophets across hundreds of years. A ruler of Israel will come from Bethlehem to shepherd his flock, a servant who will suffer. He will be betrayed. He will be pierced for our transgressions. By him, our wounds will be healed. And those things are absolutely truth in the text. These leaders were hypocrites. And quite honestly, even as I deal with texts like this, I just don't want to be a hypocrite. It's good to wrestle with things. It's good to be honest with these things. The leaders were hypocrites, and they killed an innocent Man, Not only that, when Judas came to them in despair, they sent him away with no hope and no mercy. And the reality is, we need mercy. We need mercy. And mercy can only be found, but will always be found in Jesus. Now we're going to move into a time where we take the Lord's Supper today. But I want us to think about something as it relates to this text. We know there are two other men besides Judas who died the same day that Jesus died. One on the cross despised Jesus, and one on the cross cried out to him. In Luke chapter 23, beginning with verse 32, We read this, two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. The people stood by watching The rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There's also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? 
And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. This other man on the cross didn't have all of the right words. And he was just as guilty as Judas was. But he went to the right place. There is a source of hope and mercy for all of us, and it is Jesus. We remember him each and every time we take the Lord's Supper together, the bread and the cup. We remember our source of mercy. I want to encourage you here, if you don't know Jesus, if you don't have a true relationship with Jesus, if you cannot say, my sins are forgiven because of Jesus, then don't partake of the bread and the cup today. Partake of his mercy. He's merciful. He loves you and desires you just the way that you are. He simply says, come. And so don't take of the, the elements that are just symbols of what he has done. Partake of him. Paul tells us that as often as we eat the bread and drink the cup, we remember the Lord, or we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. If you don't know him yet, then truly you wouldn't desire to proclaim that yet. So I'd, I would encourage you, set your hearts and your minds on Jesus. Consider what he has accomplished for us. That his body was literally broken. His blood was literally poured out for the forgiveness of our sins so that whoever would trust in him, whoever would believe in him, would not perish, Jesus says, would have everlasting life. If you do know him, then as you're dismissed to come and, and receive the bread and receive the cup and take it back to your seats, then let's remember rightly we have a Savior who is merciful. Merciful. And whatever we struggle with, whether it's despair or something completely different, he is merciful with us. He has proven his love for you. He's proven his love for me and that while I was still a sinner, while you were still sinners, Christ died for you. That is mercy. So let's remember rightly and let's give thanks for his body and his blood. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness and your grace. You're so gracious. You're so good to us. Gracious for giving us your word. Your word is truth, Lord, and we are grateful. I just want to confess for myself and all of us here, Lord, we're no better than Judas. You're that merciful, Lord. There's no one in this room that's 
better than Judas. We're just as sinful, just as broken, apart from Jesus, just as far from you. So we praise you and thank you for your mercy, for your invitation. And honestly, Lord, thank you for people who didn't say to us, what is that to us? Who didn't send us away, who loved us, who showed grace, who told us the gospel. We pray that you would help us to be merciful people, to love our neighbor as much as we love ourselves, to care whether we know what people are going through or not, to care. And Lord, I want to pray specifically if there's anyone in this room who does struggle with despair, Lord, that you would help them to know without a doubt that you are deeply committed to them and in love with them. That they would come to you in hope, even if they don't feel hope, that they would come to you and that you would give hope. We love you and we praise you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.